Hello and welcome to Wind Your Neckin. I'm your host Niall Annett and this week it's great to be joined by Worcester Women's Captain Lindsay O'Donnell. On the show she talks her journey through rugby and also she's currently working on the front line with the NHS during this Covid pandemic. She gives some great insight into what that's been like. This is the final episode on our six episode Will Yard sponsored giveaway, Sad Times. All of the gifts they've given away have been brilliant and this is just one opportunity to say a huge thank you to them for their support. This week we are giving away one kilo bag of single origins filter coffee. We will announce on social media how to enter but for now, enjoy the episode. Okay, so here we are on a beautiful Sunday day and it's my pleasure to welcome Worcester Warriors women captain Lindsay O'Donnell. Welcome to Wind Your Neck In and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy work schedule to join us today. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. And I know you're flat out busy and I know you've got loads going on in your in your world at the moment. And we will get to that slightly later down the line. But I mean, usually at this point, the conversation starts around like, so how's your quarantine? How's the homeschooling going? And I know yours is going to be completely different because you're obviously doing an amazing job working within the NHS at the moment. So your self-isolation and quarantine story will be slightly different to ours. But are you keeping well and how are you keeping busy when you're not working? Uh, yeah, we've, we've been really lucky, really well. I haven't had any COVID symptoms thus far. So I've been, um, yeah, touch wood, touch very, <laughs> very, very lucky from that point of view. Um, I suppose what I'm doing when I'm away from work, um, try to keep on top of a bit of training, doing a bit of exercise. I think that's good for me physically, but also mentally, like something to do, a bit of a blow off, try and forget about work for a bit. Plenty of Netflix, Disney Channel those sorts of things and uh, some good food at the weekend oh yeah, well, you, you, the f- food's a morale lifter for me I'm yep. a front rower so it's all good like but you know food's definitely a morale lifter and I don't know if you have and it's a good opportunity for me to pitch this but uh, Ethan Waller at the club at Worcester has started that uh, need for feed podcast and I'll, yeah. honestly he has me in stitches and, and every time I listen to it I'm like right okay what am I eating it's, I can't eat I just ate I can't I just ate have you given it a listen at all no, I've not listened. It's on my list of things to listen to. Um, but yeah, we've definitely actually been um, making some pizzas, taking a bit of inspiration from them. So it does some class stuff in there. So, so yeah, you're keeping busy. And I suppose one of the big things that I wanted to start off with was a big congratulations because I know you've just signed a new deal to stay at Worcester Women for and well an undisclosed length of time. But it must be nice to have that wrapped up. Yeah, reassurance that 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 you know Worcester's where I want to be for the next year. I don't think there was any question that I was really going to go anywhere else particularly now but uh, yeah really happy that that's all kind of confirmed and, and announced. Yeah there was obviously uh, Lydia Thompson, Laura Keats and Karis Phillips so yeah they've some of the some of the names that have re-signed alongside you and I wonder is that an is that a kind of example of where the club wants to get to by re-holding on some of its better players? Yeah I think so I think um you know, we, we're wanting to maintain those good players that we have got at the club. And then we're, we're looking to, to add to our squad as well. So we've had a couple of new signings as well coming in. But I think for the large part, the squad's going to remain quite unchanged. And hopefully we can just build on what we've been doing. And as captain of the Women's Rugby Club at Worcester, have you made an effort to try and keep the squad together and make sure you're keeping in contact? Because I know one of the things, of, not as a, as a captain, but just as one of the one of the boys in and around our squad, it's been really hard not seeing people as regularly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not doing too much myself. I've done a bit more delegation 
because obviously I've been I've been working. Um, but no, definitely we've got like our our players chat as well. So we're posting things on there. People are doing their own Zoom kind of Saturday nights and weekend things. Um, people are training together over FaceTime. You know, we've been we've still been doing kind of challenges. So um, some of the girls have been doing their running a hundred miles this month or cycling 200 miles which is a bit mad so lots of that and then we had our zoom end of season dinner on saturday night that was interesting because we've we're a big squad we're kind of been two teams uh, for the last season so we had about 60 players and staff on a zoom call wow. and it was just it was carnage and was there a few drinks had there was a few drinks had yep Brilliant. um i unfortunately i was working on sunday so i was like keeping you know quite calm and simmer and add a bit of talking to do so i wanted to keep it keep it good but uh yeah at some points we have to go to the our um team manager was the host for it we're like yeah just mute everyone just mute them all and absolutely. we'll see what we need to say <laughs> absolutely because you know what these zoom conversations are like i've had a few with multiple people and like you're all like trying not to speak over each other and then obviously there's a lag in the content whenever you do but no fair play that's a great idea i really love the idea that you still get together and celebrate even though it's only been half a season some of the strides that you guys have made this season have been unbelievable and we will get to that later on i promise you i'm interested to know if we can start off in terms of the beginning for you because i know the rugby journey started when you were born and raised in sterling in scotland but the main interest is around what drew you to rugby what dragged you into it? because um it's a sport that's hugely growing within women's sport and i think that's brilliant and if we could just give some insight on the ins and outs of how you got into it in the first place yeah so my rugby journey really started at primary school playing like tag rugby so we'd our, we'd put up like a team together at primary school and we'd go and play in tournaments and part of the stipulations at the time was that you had to have two girls on the pitch all the time I was pretty sporty I'd always be playing football at playtime uh, with the boys so I think I was just like a natural one that they'd be like yeah just put her in there not played rugby before but it'll be fine so that's that's kind of where it started then when I moved up to high school um, my high school done like a common try week so every day of the week they'd have a different sport on so I went to every single day so it was like table tennis, cross country, hockey. I've never played hockey before, so that didn't go that well. And then rugby was on the Thursday. So went to that, dragged my friend Morag along, much to she didn't take to it as well as I done, but I really enjoyed it. I wasn't that bad. You know, we'd done a bit of contact because I was allowed to do contact boys at that time. And, you know, I didn't get run over every time. So I was like, right, well, we'll stick at this. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So. Yeah, that's kind of where it all where it all started. Yeah, and at, at what stage did you kind of think, you know, because I know it ties in well with moving to Worcester to study, but at what time did you decide that you were going to try and give the rugby a really full-time go? And I say full-time in the knowledge that elements of the girls are full-time professionally and you got the rest of the girls who don't tr- aren't full-time professionals are expected to train just as hard. So at what stage did you make that move and decide, like, I'm going to commit everything I have, all my energy to, make, to being the best rugby player I can be? Um, I suppose it's just been a like a general gradual progression because even in the short time that I've been playing rugby since I've been an adult, things have changed dramatically, like in the last nine years. So I suppose it, it's still happening now. So as of like this month, I've went part time at work to try and give myself more time for rugby because I'm thinking I'm coming not towards the end of my career, but you know I'm getting a bit older and you know my body's taking longer to recover and I just want to give myself the best opportunity these last couple of years I've got playing rugby. So it's kind of really happening now. I think 
for such a uh, when I started playing there was like no opportunity or you didn't think there was going to be the opportunity to be professional and to make money from it not because you want to make loads of money but because you want to live and sustain yourself that those opportunities are obviously more and more common now so yeah I feel like that as process has just kind of been the whole nine years I've been playing adult rugby. Yeah I think it's brilliant I think the enthusiasm that you have to to just progress as a as a better rugby player is is evident by by sacrificing the likes of your full-time physiotherapy work which we'll, we will get to later on and I think uh, in terms of the progression that women's rugby's made I was what there's no better person to give some insight then in terms of the growing progressions that it's made from maybe nine years ago to now can you give us some idea or some thoughts around how how much has the sport improved I, I think there's so many different aspects of rugby so you obviously you've got all your SNC, you've got rugby skills nutrition like everything that goes around it and every single aspect of women's rugby has improved so we've got better nutrition support better SNC support like just our on the pitch our skills the speed at which we move our collisions have all improved I think it's probably important to point out that women's rugby isn't the same as men's and if you've got a fan of men's rugby coming to watch a women's game expecting to see what they see in a men's game it's going to be a bit different because believe it or not we don't have two 130 kilogram girls running at each other so you're not going to have as big collisions but I think what you're finding particularly the top level of women's rugby there's more space on the pitch because we all are just that bit smaller so there's more exploiting of gaps more um kind of half breaks and line breaks more offloading like it can be a bit more of a free flown game particularly at the top level so I think that that skill progression has like come on leaps and bounds and I think one of the major catalysts in all of this is the coaching that we are receiving so you know kind of 10, 15 years ago, people didn't want to coach women's rugby necessarily. You would have maybe, you know, a player or two from like the men's first team or second teams coming and coaching women's sides at clubs. And, you know, they were like great coaches and put as much as they could into it, but they weren't the same level of high class coaches that that you would maybe get in the men's game. So I think that is the coaching standard has improved so much that that that's only driving our standards as players absolutely and i think while we're on that it's only right that we acknowledge you know the some of the coaches that you guys have working with you now with the worcester women are are brilliant you know the one that that i know particularly well is mike hill who's regarded as a really really good coach and someone i enjoy working well with but along with that joe yaps come in as the director of rugby and along with mike you've got sean moore uh, richard Wincup, and benny williams who've worked with the team this year in, in varying different capacities but that's an indication that the standard of coaching will reflect standard of player um you know it's, it's well respected within the world of sport full stop that coaches have an amazing opportunity especially within developing sports to to control how rapidly they develop and i think anyone who would go down and watch you girls play along with the terrell premiership in full stop will see that there's been a massive progression what are some of the fundamental things that you think in the last couple of years we've taken massive strides here at worcester women is the is it does it sit around the quality of your set piece or is it simply just being able to really step up physically i think yeah it's probably a combination of lots of things isn't it um our kind of infrastructure of her 
of our women's section of the club has improved so much. So three years ago, we didn't have any full-time members of staff. Everyone was kind of volunteering or kind of on an ad hoc basis. Now I think we've got six full-time members of staff, something like that. We've got our head of S&C, head of medical, Joe, Shan, Benny, team manager, Josh. And obviously we've got Mike, who's kind of um, bridging a gap between kind of the men's setup and the women's setup. So yeah. That's really helpful. And yeah, I think from us as players, our set pieces improved a lot this year, particularly with, with Mike's input. And he's bringing a lot of things that he's probably lent in the men's game over to the women's game. And, and that's that's helping us helping us a lot. Absolutely, I think it's I think it's brilliant to see. I think there's so much scope for the, the sport to continue progressing. And I suppose whilst we're on that topic, is there any areas, or, or are there any areas within the sport that you would like to see develop more? Good question. I hadn't really given it much thought. Actually. It's it's an interesting one for me because you know it's got to where it is, but this can't be the ceiling. You know there needs to be more room for progression. So I wonder around which areas, and I'll spitball a few to hope that it kind of maybe resonates with some ideas but the interesting thing for me is that not the whole squad is full-time and I understand the reasons around why that is but ideally we could get to the situation where you know like the women's football there are full-time squads training to make that sport grow as big and as best as it can. Yeah I think that's definitely one thing that'll help as as if everyone was like full-time or even part-time like semi-pro I think at the moment, even though we're getting kind of match fees, we're not really semi-pro because people are still working a full-time job in the week and then playing on the weekends. And it's not necessarily always about having more time to train. It's about having time to rest and recover and have a bit of downtime as well. Um, so yeah, in our in our squad, we've obviously got Lydia, who's kind of full-time rugby. Um, obviously, she's on an, on an RFU contract. Um, so that's like really good for her. Um, kind of across the rest of the squad we've got quite a lot of students um, and other people that are you know working part-time and stuff so I think more time and kind of financial funding it would be massively beneficial but obviously it's not always feasible or appropriate at this level and I think it's really important that it's sustainable so there is no point in you know going right here's here's a lump of money fund the 30 full-time players for a year, see how we go. Because the year after, that money might not be there. It might not be, it's just not going to be feasible to just jump from having one full-time professional to, to 30. I think that word sustainable is particularly apt at this moment in time whenever there's a huge amount of, there's a huge amount of focus on whether rugby full stop is sustainable because we know that there's basically three quarters of the well, probably more than three quarters of the league in the Premiership that lose money on a regular basis. So the word sustainable is equally apt. And I suppose with the changing landscape of rugby, who knows what the future is going to hold, but hopefully that's in a really positive way for the progression of, of the women's rugby. And I think whilst we're on that, you know, is there is there an, is there a discussion to be had around how you're progressing some of the women's game from underage groups through to the senior? Do, do you lose girls because they end up kind of go, having to prioritise work and they say well I can't commit to this because there is a there's a process for younger girls to be progressing through to the senior women's team yeah definitely I think I think particularly more maybe more so for girls than for boys that they feel this like pressure this external pressure that they need to like 
be a certain way and behave a certain way and do certain things. You know, if we've got girls in playing rugby from a young age and, you know, I think we've seen this with our centre of excellence that we've got at Worcester and kind of moulding them and educating them and showing them the opportunities that they can have in rugby, then I think that's really beneficial for keeping them playing rugby. And I suppose it's what other sports they do because a lot of the girls and, and, you know, I've been at tournaments and seeing other girls playing, I'm like, oh, what else are they doing? A lot of them are playing netball and hockey and that's like their first sport and rugby is like a secondary sport so yeah. I think we lose girls to other sports which is fine You've, people have got to do what makes them happy at the end of the day there's no point in doing something that you don't enjoy but I think we need to you know make them aware of everything that can be available to them playing rugby and then again yeah with girls going to uni or with working there's that you know they've got to kind of build a career first and then do rugby after which which is hard because you know those years from probably being like 16 to 23 are really important in like your physical development but also like your rugby development as well and I think sometimes we can miss those really important years yeah but then, there's a massive window isn't there yeah and then but then we do have a lot of girls that don't start playing rugby until they go to uni because they go to uni and it's like from my experience of uni rugby it's a really good group of girls that you're around and I think a lot of people go and play rugby because it's a good social group and you play some rugby at the same time. But there's a lot of girls I've played with that haven't started playing rugby until they're 18 or 19. Okay, so let's, let's, let's follow on from that and let's discuss your progression into where you are now, I suppose. Talk us through your transition into university from high school or secondary school and then how that progression moved into moving to Worcester and getting involved with the Valkyries at that stage, but now the Worcester women. Yep, um, so I was at high school uh, in Alloa. So that's um, where, I, where I grew up. Do you know, so, I've, been, I've been desperately trying to figure out how that's, per, how that's pronounced because I've seen that written. I'm obviously doing my research to try and chat to you. And like, yeah. Aloha, I thought it would be like Aloha or something. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so uh, yeah, so in Aloha, playing, so I, was, I used to play rugby at high school. I played with boys until I was told I wasn't allowed to anymore. And I used to train at my local club so Alwa Rugby Football Club from the age of 15 to 17 because there wasn't a girls team near me that was actually playing games so I was like well I'll just go and train with the boys because that's what I've been doing anyway so I used to train with the under 18 Colts teams and like the men's first and second team till I was 17 um, which I think was unbelievable for my development because if you can, because there are physical differences in men and women, and if I could defend men, then going and playing women's rugby was a bit easier. When I was 17, I went to my local women's team, um, which was at Stirling County. So I mm. played a season of senior rugby with them while I was still at school. So that was really like valuable. I was like a little puppy that they had to look after. Um, and I kind of, I was playing 10, I was playing standoff because, well, when I'd played at school and I had played some like school girl games I'd play 10 because I was the only one that knew the rules so I just transitioned into playing 10 in senior rugby and in that year I started playing um, Scotland under 20s rugby which was really important for for my development and was really good to play with other girls that were my age and at kind of my level of development um, so that was kind of my first year of senior rugby. And at what, what position did you play for the Scottish under 20s? Um, so I started off um, at 10 and I kind of, my first under 20s game, I played fullback, I played 15, never played it before at any point, but we had like three 10s in the squad and no 
fullbacks because I think when, like girls rugby, if you know how to play rugby in your local area, you're playing ten because there's not that many girls playing rugby. So yeah, I played fullback um, when we played England under twenties in Newcastle, and it was horrible. I like it was such a hard game, and if you you know you can see the difference between England and Scotland in terms of the women's setup. It was the same in 2011. Like it was such a hard game to play in, and they you know completely demolished us but it was a really good experience but a really tough day and I've just yeah. played a position I'd never played before yeah and I'm interested at what at what point it's appropriate for you to tell me whenever you make that transition into the back row and second row because you're doing what every you're doing what every forward dreams yeah. of doing of putting the old 10 and 15 jersey on not having to touch malls not having to touch scrums yeah you know so we'll, we'll get to that later on you can It'll come. You can fill me in whenever that's appropriate. But so the the I'm interested to know the transition of university when you started studying to yep. to become a uh, physiotherapist. So I wanted to be a physio, like going through high school, and um, but I didn't get the grades to do physio in Scotland, so I needed to pass higher English, and I sat it two years in a row, couldn't pass it. So like going to do physio at uni as an undergraduate wasn't an option um, but I was so determined that I was going to leave home I was going to go to uni so we looked at other courses in different areas so in, in England to see what the what the opportunities were so that's when I came across like sports therapy as a degree so I was looking at kind of clearing places so it was kind of between Cumbria and Worcester so I knew there was rugby in Worcester but I didn't know at that time that there was a like an English premiership women's team here I just thought well there's probably not much going on in Cumbria I'll probably want to come down to the Midlands yeah that was my kind of my transition down south um, down south and one of my under 20s coaches uh, Donna Kennedy she actually coached at Worcester and and you know I spent one year with her um, at under 20s when I was 17 and I'm sure she was telling me she coached Houston like in America and I was like well she's doing so much traveling like coming back here to coach us at Scotland under 20s and I never put until I came down to Worcester and like told her I was coming to Worcester I didn't put two and two together when I told her I was coming to Worcester she's like you you do realize that's that's where I coach where I play and I'm like yeah I, I do now yeah yeah of course I thought you were <laughs> yeah. going to Texas <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so um yeah that's that's how I, end, how I ended up down here so yeah came down to Worcester and 2011 as you've said 2011 you arrive in Worcester and was very much the focus on the studies and with one eye on trying to get into the Worcester women's team or the Valkyries at that stage and how did that progression go and how do you find Worcester because I've been here six years now um not quite as long as you but I absolutely love it here it's a great city there's a lot of friendly people there's a lot of you know Irish and Scottish people are quite similar we enjoy a chat we enjoy you know a mingle with people and Worcester is as close as I found within England to getting that experience. Yeah, I love Worcester as a place and as a city. And I think if I didn't enjoy it as much as I did, I probably wouldn't be here because it's obviously hard being so far away from your family and things as well. So yeah, I think when I first moved down here, I was obviously I was busy with uni and probably living a bit of the uni lifestyle. But you know, went to um, Worcester rugby. Club and at that point we were definitely part of the like the amateur setup. We were all of our training was over the road at the amateur clubhouse, and we paid yeah. subs, and that's like everything was was over there. So I just came and you know trained hard, and I was obviously doing my under twenties kind of S and C stuff and and programming, and um, played for the second team probably for my first year and a half being down here, 
playing a mix of 10 and 15 at that point, which was fun because, you know, I used to, like, there was me and another girl, um, Beth Dixon, we used to just play, I'd play 10 for one half and she'd play 15 and then at halftime we'd just swap over, nice. which was brilliant for, for our um, development. I might ask Pens if he's willing to do that with me next time we talk out. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a, a swap over. Pens, you fancy a, he'll be like, not a chance. I don't think he'll want to go anywhere near that scrum. No, no, I don't blame him either. Um, and and so do you remember the point in which the Worcester women Valkyries at that stage made that big step towards being a considerably more professional outfit? Yeah, so we had like a, kind of like an almost like a transition year before Terrell's Prem where we became, where we were rebranded as Worcester Valkyries. You know, we had the Under Armour stash and we were all branded up and we were playing some games over at Six Ways. Even though we were still on the amateur side, we were starting to play some games over at Six Ways. And, you know, our, our training was vamping up. Everyone was still, you know, amateur and it was still like an amateur set up. But yeah, definitely there was a bit of a progression. And then when we became the Tyrrells Premiership, that's when everything just vamped up, like even that that big bit more. And, you know, coaches were being paid and like our structure and set up and kind of gym programs and S&C and nutrition was all kind of geared up again. Yeah, and then obviously there's a transition point as well within that whenever the English women's team become the first fully professional women's rugby union nation. And there was 28 players in that year, uh, January 2019, who received season contracts and that provided them the opportunity to really prioritise their rugby. As we discussed earlier, that can be really difficult. That can be really difficult for um, the balance of how you're trying to progress as a rugby player but hold on to your profession too. So my question sits around having those girls in there. Like I know Lydia has been in and is still there and I know Lark was obviously here yeah. and has moved on previously. What was it like having those girls in and around the environment to show you what was possible if you could get to that top level? I think it just probably pushed like us all on and, and drove us even like more to, you know, do as much as we could and, you know, push on with training and do the extras and, you know, probably held us a bit more accountable. Like, yeah, you might be tired, but, they're doing their sessions so I need to go and do mine because otherwise I'm going to let them down and kind of their development the team down and you're just going to like lag further and further behind absolutely and I think you're beginning to develop some of that culture that sits around high performing groups and you know that want and desire to make sure you're fulfilling your job and your role set, certainly fits in with that and I think can you give us an idea because what what I would love is that there's a 14 to 16 year old girl listening to this who's listening to your journey your your experience and thinks like I would love to do that so for them can you give us an example of what your week looks like um, in a rugby sense because we'll get on to the professional sense later yep I'll need to think back now because it's been a while since it has been a while you're right yeah (laughs) I couldn't we're now like in an off-season block as well, so it's even it feels even further away. Normally, have a, a bit of a quieter day on a, on a Monday. I'd probably try and get a a weight session done and a bit of a conditioning top up, probably off feet. So I'm probably still struggling from Saturday's game, to be honest. So I hear you. Um, that's that's the Monday. Uh, Tuesday, uh, we would go in uh, to the club. People are trying to get to the club as early as they can, so. For me, that was kind of five, half five. I'd get to the club at, I'd, you know, check in with physio, do any treatment that I needed to get done, done, get into the gym, do a bit of an S&C programme. We'd probably do some sort of individual 
development work. So quite often we'd just be doing line outs for half an hour, jumping, lifting, throwing any little work ons from that. And the backs would they would go and do their thing. Um, we go into you can't say you can't say their thing anymore because you thing. used to be one of those who go. Oh, yeah. They go and the backs go and tickle each other and kick a ball about, and then the forwards are over doing line outs and balls. Yeah, I still make jokes. I'm like, yeah, I can go. I can go help the backs out. You know, I can go be <laughs> time for them. Um, then we'd probably uh, we'd have a, t- a team meeting. So on the Tuesday, we'd review the game from the Saturday and we'd just be a pure review session. And then we'd go out and train, which would normally involve probably a good bit of contact, even though you probably still don't feel like you've recovered from Saturday. Yeah, but yeah. we've only got t- Tuesdays and Thursdays together as a squad. So you can't be doing contact on a Thursday. So it needs to be on a Tuesday. Wednesdays are a bit more of a day off. So probably still going to try and do a bit of an off-feet conditioning session, but going to try to stay off-feet as much as I can on Wednesday. Tuesdays look pretty similar. Uh, Thursday, sorry, looked pretty similar to the Tuesdays in terms of get down to the club, you know, lift some weights, a bit of individual work-ons, we'll go out, do a bit of team training, do our team run, and Friday, rest and recover again, ready to go on, on Saturday. Yeah, so that's what the week looks like, and I think the part that I'm quite interested in within that is the growing interest in the kind of stats and video analysis side, because I'm sure in the early days that was something that you wouldn't have had a huge amount of access to, and I wonder if if you've got any ideas around how much that's helped you guys progress, because I know personally myself, there's nothing that reinforces a skill or, or a trait or a behavior of me as whenever I see myself doing it wrong and then I see myself doing it better. So has that been a big progression for you guys having the access to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the analysis that we're doing at the moment and we're probably constricted by time is mostly like team stuff. So we're looking at kind of team defense, um, our shape, what it should be looking like, times that we've done it well. So kind of looking at that, particularly like on, on the Tuesday. Um, and then what we've been doing more on the Thursday is actually previewing the team that we're going to play against. So we'll look at some videos from either when we've played them last or other games that they've been playing so that we can try and change our attack or defence to, to best combat them. And I think that's been like massively helpful. And I mean, I feel sometimes I feel a bit silly saying this, but we've this year our lineups have, have changed, um, particularly with like Mike's input. So every week our defensive line will change depending on who we're playing against. And so we'll have different people going up, our formation will be different. And kind of this well, of course, that makes perfect sense that we're doing that. And I can't believe we weren't doing that before. Like it's just those things that I think sometimes we're in a bit of a way where, oh yeah, what we're doing is fine. Mm. We're not really kicking on. And I think Mike's come in and he's definitely done that from a forwards point of view. He's really kicked us on and, and changing what we're doing. But again, you need time and you need everyone at training to change things every week. So absolutely, that's it. absolutely you do. Absolutely. You need people there because what you end up doing is covering content and then having to recover it because there's people missing or you haven't quite got the message through. And yeah. like, it takes time to embed different policies and philosophies, but I think what you're definitely doing as a group before we move on to the next bit is is definitely making the most of the time that you have, making sure you're as productive as possible has to be a priority, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, and so uh, apart from apart from what we just discussed, I need to know when that progression came from moving as a back into becoming a hard, rugged, you know, attritional back row slash second row. So can you talk us through how that positional move came? Because as someone who did start their life as a as a back, believe it or not, 
I'm glad to be away from them, apart from on a Tuesday when there's unit sessions going on. Yeah. Um, so I think I had like a bit of a transitional year. Um, so the tail end of the 2012-2013 season, um, I got my call up to the Scotland squad. So I played on the wing for them because, well, you go for 15 into a bigger squad, you go into the wing because it's a wee bit easier than playing 15. So I got my first cap on the wing against France away, 80 minutes on a Friday night. It was horrible. A French crowd is like nothing I've experienced before. Uh, yeah. They were booing their own team, anyway. Um, so that was that was my first first experience, uh, international experience. And then I was playing, well, I was playing on the wing for Worcester first team. So I started getting my my first kind of Worcester first first team games on the wing. And at the end of that season, which was a big season with my first caps, and we won the premiership in that in that year. I kind of had a look at what I was doing and where I was hoping to go, and I didn't really see myself as a winger. I didn't have like that outright gas um, that you need to be a, like a first class winger. Mm. And our back three at Worcester at the time was like Steph Johnston, who was involved in like the GB twenty twelve like olympic training squad um we had cat merchant lydia thompson lolly waterman like the, it was a huge big group of players at worcester and i was like i'm never gonna like be a starting winger and so i was like well where do i go i used to get told that i defended like a back row when i was playing 10 so i was like yeah i'll just go i'll just make that move uh, into back row and donna kennedy who i've who i've talked about earlier she was she was very keen for the move, being a back rower herself. But I don't know why it was a good idea because Heather Fisher was playing in the back row at Worcester at the time. So I was like, what am I, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was a really good move for me. And, you know, I kind of went in and when the next season came, I was starting in the back row for, for Worcester, which, which was really good to see that that work that I'd done over the summer had paid off. And my first game at back row was against Saracens, against Maggie Alfonso. I was like, here we go. Welcome to being a back row. That's it. You you're, you're started, the, started the, the new career as a back row in, in style. And did you find a difference in terms of how you felt the next day? I was, I was much more sore after being a back row. <laughs> so I was just like, but I think as I was like being a back, I would quite often hit rocks and tackle. And like, yeah. I love the contact. So that's like my favorite bit of the game. So I was like, well, why not be a back row? That's, you know, your bread and butter, isn't it? Absolutely, it is, and I think fair play to you for making that transition. Um, is there? Do you prefer the six, seven, or eight role, or is it kind of just an all-rounded kind of back rower who can play any one of the three? Oh, I'm probably more of a six, but I've spent the last season playing second role. So, like a six I'm and a half, even. because you regularly yeah. get you get that kind of six and a half who can play a bit of both, but isn't like an out-and-out scavenging seven like a Sammy Lou. Yeah, I know. I'm not so much a scavenger. I think I'm like a a solid ball carrier. Like I, you know, I will make the occasional line break, but more of a like do the difficult carries. Um, like my tackling is consistent, but I just generally can work hard for kind of the 80 minutes, which is why I think I've slid quite nicely into second row because we've got a lot of great back row at the club. So mm-hmm. I've just now found a natural place in, in the row. You don't want to spend too much time in there because death row is, is particularly difficult. I know I'm going to try and try to get myself back out, but Mike, Mike thinks I'm joking. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to go back into the back row. Keep hammering him. Keep hammering him. Well, I think that sounds class. And this year, obviously, it was announced that the women's team, the Worcester women's team, have secured their place in the Terrells Premiership for another three seasons, I believe. Yep. How much of a relief is that to know that you've got a sustained period in that league to try and see what you can make of this team? 
yeah, definitely. I think the first two years that we had in the in the Prem, you know, we, we had quite a big shift of players. So when we changed into Tyrrell's Premiership, we had quite a lot of people leave Worcester. Location-wise, like they were from London or they were from Gloucester. So those people like naturally just migrated back. It wasn't, you know, because of any bad reasons. And um, so then we've had to rebuild our team and we ended up with a really young squad, which... Yeah. It's hard when you're trying to play premiership games, but actually I think three years down the line, we're now starting to see the, the benefits of having that young squad that we've been able to mould. So for the last, well, this season we've we've finished eight. I think if this eight fifth I think if the season had went on a bit, we might have actually climbed a little bit more. So you can see the progression that, that we've made. So I think the fact that we've got another three years is is we're going we're gonna excel that even more. And I think by knowing it's not a you know, we don't have that worry and that fear of being relegated at the end of this year. I think it takes the pressure off you to then build through three three years. And I think that that'll be so much more beneficial than trying to cram everything into one year. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's a great platform for you, for, for you as, a, as a squad and as a club to try and drive this thing as far as it can go. And I wonder, within that, are there a few of the girls who you, know, you can see have made the progressions and they're starting to really kick on? In three years' time, I'm always cautious of obviously naming people, but there has to be a few young girls in there who you think in three years' time can be really at the top of the game driving this club forward. Yeah, definitely. I, I think for the the most of the squad, I mean, we've got our, our two teams, that the TP team and then our development team. Through both squads, you can see people making like massive progressions. And I think a big part of that has just been in the environment more. So I suppose as, as girls, we're not exposed to being in a rugby environment as much as maybe boys are because we don't have the same like academy setups and, yeah. you know, there, there's less people um, spending time in rugby. So I think being around that environment, having the support of peers and other like medical staff and coaches, like that's all driving them on. And I think we've got some really good role models in the team. So like Lydia and, and Keats, and they're really helping to develop those players as well. And I think it's good that those players have got someone so close by to kind of be a role model for them. It's crucial to have senior players who are guiding and dragging those younger guys uh, and girls through to show them what the example is within any professional sport or environment. And I wonder, your job as as the Worcester women's captain, surely there's a responsibility that falls on that with you. How are you enjoying that role? Um, because I know it can be one that brings certain pressures and stuff, but chatting to you and having seen you guys play, and it seems like something that's quite natural. Yeah, I I, I found in different things that I've done, whether, whether it be sport or, you know, other volunteering things that I've done or whatever it is, I, I find that I naturally come into a bit of a leadership role. Not not like I like to take control, but I like things to be productive and, and work well. And I like other people to be happy and enjoying what they're doing and like to fix problems if I see things that aren't quite working. So that comes quite naturally to me. Originally, when I was asked to be captain, I, uh, I got a bit nervous. I was like, this is quite a big thing to take on. But I've got such a good team of players and like, coaching staff um, and management around me that my job's made pretty easy. We've got our senior players group as well, so they help support me really well. But 
for the most part, I just do what I'd normally do. I think my off-field leadership is a bit different from my on-field. So my off-field, I'm, I'm quite, you know, chatty, vocal, talk to people loads. But actually, when I'm on the pitch, I'm a kind of lead by example. Yeah, everybody finds their own natural way. And I think it's very obvious that you've got great leadership qualities. And here's hoping in three years' time, the Worcester women is going to be in an even stronger position than where we are now, right? Yep, hopefully, definitely. We want to be pushing up there for that Premiership title again. Absolutely, it would be unreal. Well, you've got all the support from the whole rugby department. You know, there's nothing better than seeing, you know, two wins for both teams at the weekends whenever that happens. And you've definitely got the full support from our side too. So I'm interested now to tie this in with your working life because as we've discussed, and it's very evident for everyone who listens, there's there's a dual role there. You have the, the rugby, which takes on a huge part of your time. But what, as, as has been well documented in a couple of different media articles and, and stuff, you're taking on a very important role within the NHS and within hospitals now. Can you give people who are listening just an idea of what you've been up to whilst I was saying that I'm sat here editing podcasts and training yeah. and acting like, you know, people are acting like life's real tough and there's people out there like yourself and doctors and nurses who are putting themselves at, at high risk. Yeah, so I'm I'm a physio at the Worcester Royal Hospital. Um, so at the moment, my day kind of comprises of kind of making sure that patients are are managing um, as best they can be. So um, we do quite a lot of preventing people from being deconditioning, building strength back up, getting people back in normal movement patterns. Um, a lot of people who are in hospital, either with COVID or or other um, illnesses, just lose their strength they're not eating as well as they normally would because they've been unwell they're not moving as much so we do a lot on them kind of maintaining their strength and preventing deconditioning um and then we also are involved quite heavily in doing quite a lot of chest physio so kind of making sure that that people are their kind of lung function is as good as it can be um which kind of can involve manual techniques to try and loosen um, secretions that people have in their chest um, some more invasive not very nice stuff making people cough so um, we do quite a bit of suctioning to try and um, stimulate people to cough to help clear those secretions and then we're also involved in the service to set up the non-invasive ventilation so to help people maintain um, their airways amongst all of this kind of for the past two months um, I've been doing a bit of upskilling um, to be on call so as a physio service, we are, we've got one physio who's on call every night so that they might get called into the hospital to see people, mm-hmm. um, which people I don't think all realise um, that we do as physios. So I've been spending quite a bit of time on the intensive care unit, um, seeing the patients that are kind of ventilated and sedated, um, making sure that their, their lungs are as clear as possible and and when they are better and coming off the ventilators, you know, there's a lot of hard work that then goes in to getting those patients up and, and moving again and, and getting them home as much as in as good a condition as we can do. Absolutely. I think what you do is unbelievable. I'm going to get out there and say it and I'm, and I'm in awe that that's kind of what you're living through at the moment. Whilst I genuinely say, you know, the rest of us are just sat at home and absolute credit to you and the rest of the guys in the NHS who are just putting themselves out there to work. And I think evidently you've suggested there's a lot of your work goes around that lung um 
respiratory kind of function, which is obviously huge dealing with COVID-19 um, or the coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. And I wonder, could you give people some sort of indication on what sort of shifts are you working? You know, because we've, we're talking now on a Wednesday and I know you've kind of just come off a half day. Yeah. What does a half day look like? What does a full day look like? What sort of shifts do you work to on, to off? And, and just in tandem with that, you know, what is it that you're, you're experiencing when you're in there? So my normal shift part, and so we're quite lucky, we don't really work shifts as such. So normally I would work half eight till half four, Monday to Friday. Um, at the moment, to social distance a bit more, we've got staggered start. So last week I worked nine to five, this week I'm working eight to four. And I've just gone down onto part-time hours, which was the plan before COVID for, for, for rugby. So I'm doing some extra hours on top of my part-time, so I'm doing four and a half days a week, as well as some weekend working, because, you know, we cover the weekends as well. So um, I've worked one day every weekend for the last four weeks, and I'm working the next, the day at the weekend for the next two weeks as well. You know, there's not the pressure on me to do that. There's shifts available, and I'm available, because there's, well, there's no rugby on, so I've got a bit of time on my hands just now, so... <laughs> Um, I'm working what what I can and then obviously we do an, an overnight on-call service as well so people are on call to, to be at hand if people do need additional help and um, more from the respiratory side of things. In the hospitals at the moment we've kind of got different categories of wards so we've got kind of our green wards where we've got patients that are not got not subjected with COVID, um, our amber wards where um, We've got our suspected COVID patients or on different wards, our positive COVID patients. Mm -hmm. And then we've got our red wards as well, which is um, the wards where like ventilators are being used. Um, so on those red wards, we need to wear like full PPE. So the proper masks, the gowns, and cover our, our heads and our hair as much as we can, um, goggles and, and things like that. And that's because where those ventilators are, there's a lot of particles being blasted about. So it's just really from a safety point of view. And then on the other wards, we're, we're wearing our, our apron and our gloves and our, our other surgical masks um, to protect us, but also to protect the patients. Because I suppose we're a bit worried about all these people that have kind of got COVID, but not any symptoms. So, you know, we're looking after our, our patients as, as well as ourselves. Absolutely, because you can kind of be transferring between patients, obviously, you know, so there's a duty of care to make sure that you guys are as, as clean as possible, for yourselves obviously because it seems like there's and this could be the most obvious question in all <laughs> 11 episodes but it seems like there's a huge amount of risk involved for you guys to be going in there and working in terms of the infectiousness of covid yeah definitely and i think we're, we're doing what we can with what people well we are really lucky we've got all the pp we that we need but as particularly as physios and the nurses will be the same when they're you know helping patients with their personal care or getting them moving we are really close to these patients so we cannot keep two meters apart from our patients because we need to physically put our hands on them and help them with moving and things like that so you know we're, we're taking the precautions that that we need to but yeah there, there there still is that that risk there aren't as many patients in the hospital at the moment as we would normally have because there's not any kind of elective surgeries I think people are only coming in when they need to which is good but obviously we still need people to come in if they are having an emergency which I don't know if people have been doing so much as a physio service we are we're actually managing quite well we have because there's no not so much outpatient physio so you know your musculoskeletal physio which everyone thinks is all we do and um, we've got those physios on the wards helping us 
and we've not got as many patients. So we've actually had, you know, a good amount of time to learn and upskill and, and things like that. I'm curious to know the development that you can give these people whilst they're on ventilators or they're in that amber ward in terms of their physical uh, condition. Does that make a massive difference whenever they hopefully and, and get back on their feet? You know, the progressions that you can make them within that a period of time when they get back on their feet, is there a massive improvement in the way that they'll be able to function? Yeah, so we, oh, you'd like, we would like to think so anyway. So um, with the patients that are on the ventilators, they're often quite well sedated and sometimes even paralysed just because of everything that's going on with them. Um, so with those patients, it's more of a maintenance. So because they're not moving themselves, we are doing passive movements on them, kind of moving their arms and their legs to make sure that their muscles don't get tight so that they don't have a loss of range of movement when they're then kind of come off the ventilator and, and they're more yeah. awake. With the other patients that are on the wards, we just need to try and make sure they're not losing the muscle mass that they have and losing their strength. So we're finding a lot with the, the COVID patients that, that they are, you know, and, and people that have not been hospitalised with COVID as well are finding that they're really fatigued, kind of losing strength. They're just not able to do as much as they normally would. And if you just lie in bed for a week, then you're going to have muscle wastage. So I suppose what we're trying to do is maintain as much as possible what people can manage because obviously they are unwell. We can't be getting them doing loads. We can't be getting them, you know, up on a treadmill every day because their bodies just cannot do that. But yeah, we try and maintain and progress them as much as possible so that in the short term, we can get them home as safely as they can to make sure that they're going to be safe at home and then you know the community teams are doing a great job of going in and and getting them more up on their feet when they are you know physically more well yeah absolutely i i think it's incredible one of the things that i was hoping to discuss with you was around this term which obviously as a dopey rugby player doesn't mean much to me but something that's out there quite a bit and i'm sure that this has to involve the physiotherapist in some way but it's around proning and the, th- the thought that uh, people with covid it's easier for them to breathe whilst they're on the front yeah so with the proning so that is getting somebody lying on their front um the theory behind that is that you've got a larger like area of lung at your back with less pushing down on it so if you imagine that you're lying on your back um, you've got your heart which is sitting on the front of your lungs so your surface area of your lung at the front is smaller anyway because of where your where your lung is your lungs are this can maybe not be the right term but shorter at the front than they are at the back mm-hmm. so your lungs go further down at the back um, and then also you've got the weight of your, like, your, your chest and, and people have more weight on the front of them, whether it's men or women, than they do at the back. Um, and you've also got your diaphragm and your abdominal contents pushing up. So by getting people on the front, it takes all that weight away from them. Um, and you've got a really nice big surface area of lung at the back. So that just means that the oxygen, when people breathe in, it's easier for it to get into the bloodstream. And, yeah. and it has been really beneficial. So we, we've seen it where, you know, we're monitoring how much oxygen people have got in their blood with like a SATS probe. And you can see, you know, the percentage increasing straight away as soon as you get people onto their fronts. That obviously involves you going in and having to carefully manoeuvre them. So that again, that's an, that's an example of the risk that you're putting yourself at though, because normally these will be people who have diagnosed COVID and coronavirus, right? 
Yeah, so the patients that are on um, ITU, quite often they are quite passive, so we need to do all the work. So um, it's not necessarily just physios, the, the nurses and even the doctors and things are all helping in that proning. And because they've got a ventilator as well, it's quite, you know, we need to be careful with how we're moving them. So, you know, it's a real big team effort. With patients who are able to, we'll get them to um, prone themselves, so get themselves into that position because you know they need to be able to get themselves back out of it after a bit of time mm -hmm. as well um so a lot of what we're doing is giving patients advice getting them to get into that position if they can't if they can't you know even going into side lying or sitting up a bit more um, can be really beneficial yeah it's amazing um i think i'm gonna have to spend a tenner to a given charity every time i say that's amazing or you guys are awesome <laughs> during yeah. this conversation i'll be a poor man but i'm curious to know um in the early stages of when this all broke what were the emotions like for someone in your job because for me there was a few initial reservations but i wasn't going to be on the front line having to fight and scrap and help people the way you are so was there nervousness anxiousness scared or did you basically realize that you have a duty because i'm assuming as a physiotherapist you have an innate want to help people yeah definitely i think i've i've kind of went through a couple of different stages of emotion and like how i've processed it so to begin with i was thinking oh we'll be fine like, yep, this virus is in other bits of the world, but we'll be fine where we are. It's not really going to affect us. Um, then when we started seeing it more and more um, in our hospitals, we're getting busier um, with COVID patients and trying to get rid of patients that didn't have COVID. It was more like, well, let's just go, we just got on with it. I didn't really think about it too much. It was just what my job was and I was doing like the best I could. just got on with what, what I did. And as the weeks kind of passed by and we got a bit more time to stop and reflect, it was, you know, this is, I understand what's going on because I'm here seeing it. And I, yeah. you know, I was thinking, how can people who are not seeing the inside of hospitals or have loved ones that have had COVID understand what's going on? So I think at that point, I was like, this is big what's happening. It's not going away anytime soon. And I think, yeah, just a bit more thought about what's going on. So, yeah, a real mix of emotions over the last kind of eight or nine weeks. And there's been probably like fear, anxiousness, you know, worry amongst amongst all of that as well. Of course. Well, I think it's, I'll say it again, I think it's awesome. I think I'm like genuinely, like I am proud to be a part of the same rugby club as you in terms of what you're contributing. Because obviously there's, as someone who likes to help people, there is, the square root effect all that I can do and to know that someone in, on my, in my rugby club is out there helping the way you are makes me super proud so well done and well played here I think um the infectiousness and the, and the, the, the state that we're in you've you hit the nail on the head you've said this isn't going anywhere anytime soon there's going to be a reality that we're probably going to be going back to some resemblance of normal life whilst the coronavirus is still hanging around, what yep. sort of challenges will that present you as a semi-professional rugby player um, with kind of tying in with your work? Yeah, I think one of my worries that I'm having at the moment is, and you know, we'll discuss this with like our medical team and things as well, that yeah. I am exposed to the virus more than your normal person would be. And I don't want to, when we are allowed to go back and train with our teammates again, even though it will be socially distanced, like. I worry about you know training with other people and putting other people at risk so I think that's one of those things that we're going to need to like weigh up the the pros versus cons and you know there's a couple of other um 
you know, teammates. So like Katie Jenkins, who's um, a pharmacist in hospitals, and we've got other people um, that are you know, key workers. Um, whether we'll be training together and we'll keep everyone else away from our little training group. Or I, I just. I think that's one of the challenges that we're having too. You know, there's a lot of guys who evidently don't work in the NHS but have partners here, key workers and doctors, and there's going to have to be, I don't know, I mean, my assumption on it is that there's going to have to be a separation of training until there's a vaccine. I don't know if, it's, if the vaccine is the answer to everything, but yeah. that seems like the kind of logical step. Because I think, in, well, in football anyway, they're talking about everyone self-isolating, aren't they? And mm. I think it's a bit different in rugby because it's, Financial implications are very different in rugby than they are in football. Absolutely, so, we're, like, we're not we're not earning the same money at all, no. are we? So, yeah. there's there's decisions to be made, and we'll deal with them. But in the meantime, I suppose we've just got to continue. The next part is people have got to continue to listen to the advice and follow. And I suppose, uh, as someone who's experiencing it firsthand, do you want to reinforce some of the advice that's been put out there? Try. I try not listen to the news, actually. <laughs> Do you know it's really interesting? What are we, we even doing now? Yeah, I know it, it's really interesting because we had Keith Wood on the last episode, and he said, "Like I can't listen to the, the news every night because it's you. Obviously, it's different because you're facing it every day. But there's a, the nature of it is that it's quite depressing listening to it every day. But I suppose is there as someone who's going to have a platform, yeah, to hopefully speak to a lot of people within the Worcester area and hopefully further afield. Is there is there advice or is there a reinforcement of the rules and the guidelines? Yeah, I think we just need to follow what the government are saying. They've got the science and, you know, to, to back up the the rules and the regulations that they're making around what we're doing. So, you know, I think at the moment we're only meeting up with one person outside of our household. And I think that's really important that, you know, where it is safe to do so that we do that because that's really important for like our mental well-being and, you know, reconnections. But at the same time, we need to be mindful that, coronavirus is, is still here and it's still among us and we we need to be particularly careful not to continue the spread of it brilliant and i wonder kind of heading towards the tail end of it have you been overwhelmed by the support that's been put out there for you yeah definitely it's it's come as a bit of a surprise because i suppose at the end of the day i'm just doing my job i'm doing what i've I trained to do and you know i wouldn't have thought any differently about doing anything else in, in times like these so yeah the support that I'm getting from kind of friends and family and teammates and people that I don't even know that are messaging me saying like what a good job I'm doing like it's really appreciated and you know I think we all in the NHS are, are appreciate that everything that everyone's doing for us and I know it must be hard for people who don't feel like they're having a direct effect because they're not you know they're at home and like yourself you're, you're maybe you're not out there but you are doing things because you're showing support to the NHS. You're you're keeping yourself safe, and I think that's what we've all got to do. Everyone's got a role to play in this, and it doesn't matter if you're seeing patients with COVID or not. Everyone's got a massive part to play. Absolutely, we are one big team, and we need to attack this by by committing to the the roles and the jobs that we're given. And I think I I will speak on behalf of everyone at Worcester when I say you and the rest of the girls who are involved with working on the front line and helping in whatever way you are, we are so super proud of what you're doing and how you're conducting yourselves. And I genuinely mean it. It's it's an honour for us to be part of the same rugby club as you guys because you're doing stuff that we couldn't dream of doing and I think it's class. And I want to say a big thank you for taking your time out to come and chat to me whilst I sit in my dining room talking some more crap with people. And it's, it's been great to have you on because I know you're working super tough hours and 
it's been great also to experience some of the away from the the professional side of what you're doing the ins and outs of how the the rugby club works and your progression through from as a young rugby player into the semi-professional aspiring professional that you are so a big thank you for coming on today no thanks very much for having me a big thank you to Lindsay for taking time to chat today even though she's flat out with work and I suppose this is a suitable moment to say thank you to all the workers out there continuing to do their thing and help people during this time. We appreciate everything that you're doing. We will announce on social media how to win the one kilo bag of single origins filter coffee so please keep an eye out and get in the mix. I am Nara Lannett and thanks for listening to Wind Your Neckin'.